0: Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And as you turn there, the children may now be released for Children's Church. And as you're able, if you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him and cast him out into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You may be seated. This is God's word.
1: Everybody good? trick question. I hope you're well, by God's grace, today. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn our attention now to your word, we do so dependent upon it for instruction and so that our lives could be changed. Lord, this is a living word, it's not a book like any other. And so would now, in this time that we share together, would your Holy Spirit grant us understanding and insight so that we can not just understand, not just be hearers of the word, but so that we could be doers of the word. To the glory of your name, we pray, amen. Well, here we are in Matthew chapter 22, making our way quickly to the end of this gospel. Not so quickly, maybe some of you are thinking. Uh, We do plan to um, continue our exposition of Matthew, and I think sometime this summer we'll be uh, completing uh, our journey. I know that we started Matthew before we launched as a church, and so I was prayerfully debating, do I continue in Matthew or not? And in talking to many of you, several of you said, why would we stop? And so we continue our journey through Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. We find here a a third parable in a series or a trilogy of parables, if you will, uh, coming out of Matthew 21, the two parables there, and now this third parable of the wedding feast. Jesus is now in Jerusalem, and for three years he had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He had raised the dead, healed the sick stilled storms, multiplied food for thousands when there was only a little, and on and on we could go about his earthly ministry. For three years he preached and he did miracles and continued to gather his disciples and invest in his disciples. And three years later, now in Jerusalem, all but a small band of Jews Had rejected him. Even though he had offered himself and presented himself as the one who had certainly fulfilled the messianic promises, his own people had largely rejected him. So, the two parables that we looked at last week and the one that we look at today are are parables that are really describing and confirming this rejection. It it really, these parables really are are some of the most dramatic and powerful of of any parables that he spoke, especially the one that we have before our, our eyes today in Matthew 22. The intensity level sort of peaks here in this parable. And it's clear that the Pharisees and the majority of the Jews have totally missed it when it came to who Christ was. Now, this particular parable has a setting in royalty. It's a a setting in the king's palace, if you will. It's it's a setting of of a great feast, a great banquet. And the king is throwing a celebration for his son. But this was not just any wedding. This was the king's son. This was a royal wedding, and a feast for many to to enjoy, and many were invited to to attend. Obviously, when you read this parable, the the connection to God and his kingdom, we're told, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. So this parable is really describing the the kingdom of God and and the fact that we have a, a king who is Inviting us to a great banquet, a great celebration, in light of his son's marriage, connection to God and his kingdom and even the messianic banquet that we see in Revelation nineteen certainly is is in light, is in view here and so as we consider this parable today I, I, in light of 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 what it's doing in, in as we consider what God is teaching us about his kingdom, we're going to look at several observations that we see about this this great celebration, this great preparation that God has made and invited us to. For indeed, God has made a glorious preparation and is calling us, inviting his people to come and honor him by joining him at this feast. So as we consider that invitation, I want us to to look at several truths that we see about this celebration, about this banquet, about this feast. Coming from the king. Number one, as we observe this great invitation, it is a generous invitation. When you think about what the king is doing and how the king went about inviting the the people to, to, to come to his son's wedding feast, it is a generous, an extremely generous invitation. The parable begins with the king sending out his servants to call those who had been invited to this wedding feast. So as you think about it, the, the save the date cards, they've already been out for some time. The invitations have been mailed. The list has been checked. And now the servants are going out and certainly in this In this unique culture, in this day and time, this is how it would often take place. There would be an an invitation extended and of the day, as the day arrived of of the celebration or the feast, there would be servants that would go out and bring in the guests who were invited and this is exactly what we see in this text. Servants go out and call those invited to come to the feast that had been prepared. But there's a Strange turn in the story, isn't there? They don't come. They don't want to come. So the king sends out more servants to invite them again. This time, maybe if I detail the menu, maybe that was what was missing the first time, right? So he explains, listen, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. And again, they're not interested. Now I want you to skip to verse 8. We're going to come back to the ones in between, but skip to verse 8. After this second rejection, he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Once it's clear that that list A was not coming, he begins to open his invitation to any and all who would come. And we're told that the wedding hall was filled with guests in verse 10. Now obviously this banquet is symbolic of, of God's kingdom. We're told that in verse 2 and, and the king represents God. So we, so we learn some some important truths about God's invitation here that's a very generous invitation and and what makes it so generous a couple of things that you see here that 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 magnify the generosity of, of the the king's invitation number 1 we see the provision of the king the provision of the king the setting is is the king's the king's wedding hall the the the, the banquet hall is, is prepared, and you, you can just imagine the, the royalty and, the, and all, of, all of the preparations that have been made. This is a great feast filled with all kinds of food. Likely, this is descriptive. Many think of the kingdom in its final phase when we shall enjoy the blessings of Christ and his rule in the new heavens and new earth. But it's, it's, it's what, what I want you to see here is just the, the care of preparation and and the the, the, the royalty and the glory that, that's 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 present in this in this celebration. You know, Isaiah points us to, to that great day in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, when we will celebrate the king's victory and see his kingdom consummated. He, he says there, pointing forward in Isaiah, he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well refined. I know that makes some of you Baptists nervous that's how God describes his feast. It's a glorious invitation to enjoy a fabulous feast. The Lord is taking meticulous care to provide his best for those invited. One of the Puritans once said this about feast, a feast is for love and for laughter, for fullness. And for fellowship. Think about that. When you're, when you're invited to, to a great celebration that involves food. It's an enjoyable time, right? It's an enjoyable time when you're celebrating. Whether it's a wedding or any other context. When you're able to, to gather around the, the table and enjoy the, the provision of food. The presence of love and laughter. For fullness and for fellowship. How God will describes His kingdom, Old Testament to New Testament. God is preparing His great banquet even now, even now, so that we will enjoy an eternity of love and laughter, of fullness and fellowship. But notice here, a feast of this magnitude. Can you imagine the price? Some of you have recently paid for weddings. Feel the pinch here, right? But this is an invitation for people to come and enjoy the feast. And listen, the king has paid the price. He's paid for this. This wasn't just something where it was a potluck kind of thing. Notice he says in, in the passage here, it's my dinner, my ox, my fat calves. It wasn't the, the livestock of some servants. It was his own. He provided this banquet, he provided this celebration. He provided this, this glorious feast out of his own resources, and at cost to him. This is his provision. But notice the desire of the king. The desire is that as he makes this great provision that his wedding hall would be full. That there would be a wedding hall filled with guests who were there to honor him and his son in this great celebration. In verse 3, the servants go and they call those who are invited to the wedding feast, but we're told they would not come. Now listen, this is a big deal. This was not just any invitation. This was not like one of those invitations that comes home with your kid from school, RSVP kind of thing, and you're like, "Well, I don't really know these people, so we're not going." It wasn't that. This was the king it so was not just any invitation. This was an invitation from the king, and because it carried his authority, it was more like a summons, a command to join him for this grand celebration. So their, their refusal to come was somewhat treasonous. It was a rejection of his authority. It was a, a dishonoring of his His honor and his fame, but because this king, unlike many kings, because he's a patient and kind and generous and gracious king, sends out more servants. He invites them again. This is the way with God. He's he's patient. He's good. This was a lavish meal on the king's dime. And and these people, these people who were invited, would rather stay home on the farm or tend to their business than go to the king's banquet. And yet we see this picture of just how gracious God is in his invitation to his kingdom when people respond with no thank you. He sends yet another invitation. This, we read this parable and the response of those being invited to us is, is inconceivable who would want to miss a, a, a celebration in the king's palace doesn't matter if he's a democrat king or republican king right it's a king and it's a party at his house he paid for it who would want to miss that But their response is clear. Tell those who were invited the second time, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves. They've been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast, verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. It's obvious that Jesus is using this parable And of those who have rejected the king's invitations as an indictment on the Pharisees. And probably all unbelieving Jews. But his feast would not be a waste of his time or a waste of his resources. There would be a banquet. There would be a celebration. And that wedding hall would be filled with guests. King sends his servants. We're told in verse nine, verse eight. Wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. They have no interest. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is most likely a picture of how the Jews rejection had led now to the Gentiles' inclusion. We see that take place through the rest of the New Testament. But notice here that this invitation that the king had extended to his banquet, to his feast, is now a universal invitation. The free offer, as we now apply this to the kingdom, the free offer of the gospel is in view here. We we remember back in Matthew chapter 10, right? Verse 6, I think it was, Matthew 10 verse 6 where Jesus told his disciples to go, he sends them out, and they're to go not to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But by the time you get to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, what is Jesus telling his disciples? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always. The end of the age. The king has made preparations for a great celebration. He's invited people of all types to join him. Listen, when we think about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is inclusive of all peoples, of all nations, of all tribes, of all tongues. It's a universal invitation. This is what makes the king's invitation so generous. He's so patient and he's so gracious even to those who reject him. But now he's extended this invitation to all who would come. It should remind us of how we now as ambassadors for this king we are called to Invite everyone to join us in this great banquet. But we see we see that his invitation is certainly generous, but there's a second observation we find here in the text, and it's it's what I would call a varied opposition. The shocking reality about this parable is the refusal of those who were invited. They didn't just forget, right? All of us have missed a something before because we forgot. We're too, our calendars are too full and we forget and we just don't show up and then we feel bad about it. That's not the case here, right? They didn't just forget. They didn't want to come. They rejected the king's invitation. And certainly while Jesus is exposing the rejection of the Jewish people in this parable, it it nevertheless has great value and instruction for us. Because you see sort of him describing their rejection. And this is not just a tendency that Jews have. You read Romans 1, 2, and 3, and all humanity are indicted. All all peoples are are under the curse of... As we think about those who refuse to come to the wedding feast, I want you to see two types of rejection here. First of all, there's what we could call an indifferent rejection. Verse 3 says when the servants want to call those invited or went to call those who, who were invited, they would not come. They didn't want to come. And so they sent other servants out, gave them the menu and said, here, all of the preparations have been made. And verse 5 tells us they paid no attention and they went off. One to his farm and another to his business. Absolutely indifferent to the call of the king to his glorious banquet. I'd rather keep to the farm and just work. They had better things to do. And this should serve as a, as a warning for us. Because the reality is, is that you and I can be so preoccupied with self-centered mundane life, that we are more committed to serving our own self-interest than we are recognizing the honor the king deserves. J.C. Ryle said this, Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect to the gospel kill their tens of thousands. Friends, we were created in the image of God and we rebelled and marred that image and sought fulfillment and satisfaction and other things. And what we're told in the gospel is that we have all of our needs of fulfillment and satisfaction met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All your true needs and all your true desires, what, when, when it boils down to what you truly need and how you will truly be fulfilled Those are met in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet there are multitudes of people. Maybe some of you who want to seek fulfillment in everything else but Christ. The problem with indifference is not that we totally lack desire. The problem with it is that we place our desires in other things. It's an uncultivated or a misplaced desire. There's this tendency in all of our hearts that we fill it with work and business and leisure so that we have no spiritual appetite left. Some of you probably heard the famous quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, Far too easily pleased. This type of rejection is subtle and rampant. And because of its subtle nature, it is much more dangerous. It can be found anywhere, including a worship gathering like this, indifference. Indifference. Maybe you're here today and you've heard the call of the gospel before. You, you, you hear regularly that, that Jesus is, is, is the hope for the world. He is the rescuer of sinners. He is the one in whom our hearts must prize above all else. And maybe you're here. Maybe you're even in this room and you still to this day think, I just don't get it. I have no desire. No desire to pour out my life into Him? Or maybe you're here today and you have no taste for Christ and you're content pursuing your own life in your own way. Could it be, as Lewis said, that it's because you're far too easily pleased? You see, the problem is that even when we find satisfaction and fulfillment in the world, it doesn't last. We think, if I can just have this, all will be well. And then when we get it, all is well for a period of time. But then we find it lacking and the need for more. And indifference towards Christ will cost you your life. This indifferent rejection, but then there's this explicit rejection. In verse 6, while those, so, while some paid no attention and went off to his farm and business, there were others, the rest we're told, verse 6, who seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Picture of the prophets here. But there were some who were, were, I mean, think about it, this is crazy. When I heard Trey reading this, I heard a couple of you were like, whoa. That's good because you're following along in the reading, right? But it's, it's a little shocking. It's very similar to the parable of the tenants, right? They killed them. That's a bit extreme, don't you think? That's the feeling we get. It's crazy. But friend, this is how many respond to the gospel. They, they're not just indifferent, they're hostile. They're not only don't want the gospel, they will physically harm those who attempt to bring it to them. Just this week's news about those dear brothers and sisters, perhaps were on the raft from Libya, pushed overboard because they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. These dear servants from Ethiopia, Ethiopia, who follow Jesus, martyr for their faith. Friend, the point is simple, whether indifferent or hostile, rejection to the king is rejection. You may say, well, I'm not like those extremists. I'm not like those who who kill and murder. Friend, your rejection to the gospel is rejection to the gospel. You can be explicit in your rejection of it or indifferent in rejection of it, and you're in the same state. We're told in this text that those who refuse his invitation will be held accountable because, remember, I said that this invitation was not just an invitation, it was a summons. And they refused to honor the king as he summons them to this celebration, and they were dishonoring him, therefore rejecting his command. told that the king was angry and sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Very likely that this is describing the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but it could very well be pointing to the future or both. But the point is it's language of judgment. Rejection of the king will be held accountable. As Jesus points to the killing of these wicked men and the burning of this city, he's he's pointing that, that there's accountability. Whether you're indifferent in your rejection or you're explicit in your rejection, indifferent or hostile, you will be held accountable. And that is still true. You have a varied opposition and you can see You could probably come up with other types of opposition, and they're certainly there in the Bible. But the point is, it doesn't matter what type of opposition. Any type of opposition is still opposition. And you will be held accountable in judgment for your rejection of the king's invitation. And then number three is what I call a clarified redemption. Look at verses 11 through 14. In verse 11, once the wedding hall was filled with guests, we we see that the king comes in, to look at the guests, to inspect, if you will, those who had attended. And he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. Now, that may sound strange to us today, but in ancient times, at wedding feasts or great celebrations such as these, there would be appropriate garments you would wear to these occasions, right? Even today, we sort of have that in our culture, and our customs. You wouldn't show up at a wedding in shorts and flip-flops unless you're getting married in a very casual environment. I'm for that, by the way. But in ancient times, respectable clothes, normally white, were mandatory at such feasts. And so as the king comes around, here sits the guy in shorts and flip-flops while everybody else had the white wedding garments on. He sticks out. In this particular case, we know that those who had filled the wedding hall were were those who had been invited, I don't want to say at the last minute, but in, in response to the first group's rejection, now the invitation was to everyone. Go to the streets, he says the main roads, and invite as many as you find, good and bad. And so here they are. But even in that invitation, what's implied in this story is that because of the hour, because of the preparations that have been made, there there wouldn't have been time, necessarily, to go home and get prepared. It was like, come now. And so embedded in this, implied in this, is that the king would have supplied the wedding garments Upon arrival, so you'd have gone, gone maybe through this particular hallway and got properly clothed before going on to the wedding hall and enjoy the feast. Well, apparently this guy attempted to bypass that. And so when the king confronts him, he, he confronts someone improperly dressed, and there's no excuse for him to be this way. He said to him, friend, friend, Notice the kindness again, the the genuine heart of the king. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Which at that point, if he would have had a good excuse, right here is the place to give it, right? But the text tells us he was speechless. He had no excuse. Friends, what happens in this account is this man attempted to come to the king's feast on his own terms and not according to the terms of the king. Bad idea. We do not come to the Lord, to the king's banquet, however we want that we must yield to and submit to the terms that he has established. And that means that we must be clothed, not in any attire we want, but in the attire that he requires and supplies. In Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress. And a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This guest did not properly clothe himself. He was not properly clothed and therefore he was bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness. Clearly language of judgment. This this. It's so descriptive of how someone tries to make their way into the kingdom of God in their own way, on their own terms. And the king confronts them and they are cast out. So the question is, how can I be dressed in the proper garments? Pastor, where do I find the garments? Is there a website? Is there a website that I go to that I just put in my size and I'm sent? I love Jesus t-shirt. Second Corinthians 521 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God demands righteousness. And that's a problem. Because there is no one righteous. No, not one. But listen. The wedding garment that God demands, his son supplies. That is the beautiful reality of the gospel. The fact that God demands that there be righteousness, that there be proper dress, that there be proper Attirement for us that we would be clothed in righteousness is good news for unrighteous people because Jesus is the only one who was righteous. He lived the life we should have lived. Perfectly compliant to the law, perfectly obedient to his father, and yet he died on the cross the sinner's death. And So what God demands, his son supplies. That is good news for you. Because if you would simply trust in that which God has supplied through his son's provision, there's hope for you because you can have his righteousness. You can be properly dressed on that great day when the king does his inspection. Don't be caught. Don't be caught on that day improperly clothed, trying to clothe yourself, trying to come in your own terms, in your own way. Come in the way that God has supplied because it's the only way, friend. It's the only way that you will be welcome to this great celebration. That God has prepared for you. He wants you there. But you have to come in the way that he has provided. And all who refuse this invitation or all who attempt to come on their own terms. There's not a seat for them. But they will be cast into outer darkness. In judgment where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. very, Very descriptive of hell. Final judgment. This parable ends with a summary statement, verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. This final statement is in essence the moral of the story. And it's a clear It's a clear statement that that strikes that biblical balance of God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. Many are called. You're called. You're responsible to respond to the king's invitation. The call goes out. The call continues to go out. But only those who respond and come to the king's banquet properly clothed Only those will in the end prove that they were chosen. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, as Peter tells us, to make our calling and election sure. The sinner's prayer is not your assurance. It's not a signed card, an experience that you had, if you're depending upon that, you're depending upon works. Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart that is demonstrated through genuine faith and genuine repentance in Jesus Christ. So if you want to be properly clothed, if you want to be Welcome to this great celebration. Look to Jesus and believe in Him and trust in Him because He has provided everything you need to be made right with God and be welcome to the celebration. And the invitation still goes forth. There's a feast, there's a banquet awaiting you. Would you come? Are you coming? Are you going to the feast? Can you say that with confidence and assurance? And if you can't, friend, the invitation is for you. Would you come? Quit looking to the ways of this world. Quit looking to yourself. Quit trying to make your way there on your own terms, in your own way, by doing what you think is right. And stop it. Stop it and look to Christ. He paved the way. He provided the sacrifice. And he will clothe you in the righteousness that God demands if you will place your hope and trust in him? friend, will you come dressed in these righteous garments that Christ provides, or do you think you're fine with what you have? Many are called, but few are chosen. Friend, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to this great day and this great feast, this great celebration that God has indeed prepared. And he's prepared it for you and for me to enjoy, to be present with him, to celebrate his honor and the honor of his son. Not just for an evening, but for all eternity. A never-ending banquet of joy and fellowship with the king. Will you be there? only by christ only by christ and only through christ can you come let's pray father our hearts are are struck by the fact that you would go to such great extent to provide such a beautiful, glorious celebration and feast in honor of your own Son, but desiring that we should be there. Father, this parable is so instructive and so helpful because it exposes the the reality of our sinful hearts that are so indifferent and so hostile or even self-dependent as if we could somehow make our way into your kingdom in our own way. Father, would you allow this parable to, to powerfully confront us so that we would respond in faith and repentance. Lord, would you not allow anyone in this room today, would you not allow any of us gathered in this place today to be like those invited that have no desire to come? There may be people in this room right now, Lord, that they hear the invitation again and they're not interested. God, would you shake them? Would you awaken them? Would you, would you make your invitation so, so beautiful for them? So effectual in their lives, so irresistible that they would so want to be at your banquet. God, would you stop them from running? Would you stop them from being indifferent? Would you stop them from seeking satisfaction and fulfillment in this world? And would you bring them to the banquet? Father, would you help those of us who have been invited and responded to be overwhelmed by your generosity. There's not a person on the planet that deserves to be at this banquet. Not a person, except Jesus. But God, you have called us and you have clothed us. Father, I pray that we would be found not just grateful, but truly humbled. That you would be so generous. And that that would impact how we live out our lives for your glory. That that would impact how we speak to our family and how we serve one another. God, that that would impact our lives in every way. Father, would you move in our hearts and would you would to you continue to, to call people to this great banquet. There's a day when the invitation will no longer be present. Help us to respond today. Knowing that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day we can have hope. Today is the day we can celebrate with you. Because of what you've done through Christ. Pray in his name.